What is up, everybody? This is Christian. And this is Ethan. And this is the Reasonable Podcast. So as you all know, on this podcast, we get a lot of different people on. Um, you know, we get to talk about some fun things and also some insightful things. We've had some real brainiacs on this podcast. And today we had another one on. And I can't wait for you guys to hear everything that our guest has to say. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this podcast. Welcome to the Breezy Bird Podcast, the best podcast in the Valley. Christian, how are you doing today? I'm doing amazing, Ethan. How are you? I'm doing great. We finally got the guest I've always wanted on this podcast, um, and it is Mr. Meal. Mr. Meal, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? <laughs> We're doing Pretty great. Good. We're doing great. Now, I always, I know I asked you a while ago to be on the podcast, and then just time-wise, things didn't work out, but then the last time I was at MMI... And for those, those, for those of you guys who don't know, Mr. Meal was one of my high school teachers. And the last time I was at the school for a, a open house, I think it was, you ended up talking about the fact that some of your students were talking about the podcast in your class. So at that point, I was like, all right, if this is getting around MMI, I have to get them on officially. So what was going on like in the classroom? Are people actually talking about it? It's interesting. I, I didn't hear too much of it until I brought it up to a few students and they it was common knowledge to them. I mean, obviously, you're more popular than you knew. Um, I I didn't know what you guys were up to, so I was kind of surprised. But the students, they always know, you know, they're one step ahead of me. We're like, yeah, we listened to it. We, we've seen it. It's pretty cool. So <laughs> I was impressed. Yeah, well, I can't wait to end up advertising it and that kind of stuff. And then hopefully all of them will be like, oh, my God, Mr. Meal, you were on the podcast. So <laughs> I'm very excited for that. Um. So yeah, we just wanted to end up getting on the podcast just to talk about a bunch of different things. One, some specific stuff with you and how you became a teacher, um, you know, your journey throughout, just schooling mm-hmm. in general, um, and just a bunch of different questions along those lines. So sure. the first question I really have was, was was teaching like always your plan? Did you always want to be a teacher? Like, where did you, when did teaching really become like the thing that you wanted to do? Boy, that's a, that's the million dollar question, really. <laughs> For me, um, I I had never really considered teaching throughout higher education. Um, hadn't considered it in high school. I mean, I really loved the teachers that I had, but I never saw myself as a, a teacher or in a teacher's role. Um, I was really interested in science and research, and so those were the passions that I had pursued. And I had taken some time off. In, in high school, I wasn't really sure what direction I wanted to go. Um, I spent some time kind of dabbling and floating around from different colleges, kind of following the the niche kind of, you know, subjects that a lot of my friends took and were interested in, you know, thinking I'd find my way. And I really didn't find my way doing that. Um, so I, I just said, you know, this is kind of ridiculous. I'm spending a lot of money here. I'm, I'm not finding, you know, a path that I want to follow. So I just stopped for a while. I, I, I discontinued learning in the college environment and I went to work. So I worked uh, with a good friend of mine at a real estate office doing title abstracting, which is kind of like doing the legwork to real estate closings. And uh, I did that for quite a few years. And during that time, I got really interested in marine aquariums. I kind of like immersed myself in everything I could find out about marine life and how to maintain them and how to set up aquarium. And um, then realized, you know, there are actually careers that are built around marine science. And then finding out, well, Kutztown University, which is close by, you know, has degree programs um, under marine science. So I kind of pursued that from a back door. I started at Ultra-IC and I, I spent two years there and um, got my associate's degree and then transferred all of that over to Kutztown for my bachelor's degree. Um, what I really liked about that program was it was out in the field. We did all of our summer research at Wallops Island, which is in Chincoteague, Virginia. So, you know, for six weeks, sometimes in the summers, I'd be down there doing field work and research. And I really found that interesting. I learned a lot. Um, I learned a lot about myself in the field and I learned about the things that I was really interested in. So those that's the path I pursued. And then I went on to graduate school in physical oceanography. That was at the University of Delaware. When I left there, I still wanted to do research. I still hadn't considered teaching at all. Um, 
I really was invested in uh, doing what's called numerical modeling, which are like simulations of ocean environments. Um, that was what my core study was based on, and that's what I thought I would do. So I really kind of pursued that pretty heavily. There weren't a lot of options in that when I left within the area, and there was a lot going on at the time. Back here in Pennsylvania, um, my sister and my mother who were living together, my sister is handicapped, and my mother who was getting up there in age, they weren't doing so well. So we decided to just pick up and move back to Pennsylvania. And so when we came back to Pennsylvania to help out a little bit, I was kind of like left in the mix of what do I want to do? Well, obviously I can't do oceanography in Pennsylvania. We're not near an ocean. And so that kind of <laughs> locked me out. Um, so I thought about teaching science classes. And so I got into um, very slowly substitute teaching. I was doing that uh, in Jim Thorpe at the high school. And then as an adjunct faculty member, slowly getting into teaching at Lehigh Carbon Community College. Um, and I was teaching science courses there, anatomy courses and biology courses there. Um, it wasn't until I just ran into a friend of mine um, at our local bank and he said, hey, I just wanted to let you know, MMI, he was looking for a science teacher. I hadn't even considered it, thought about it. It started and at the bank? <laughs> I, it saw him at the bank and it started for me. And he said, you know, you should you should interview and if that's something you're interested in. And I kind of tossed it around a little bit. I wasn't sure if I wanted to teach at the high school level. I enjoyed teaching at the college level, but I really wasn't sure. So I did. I went up and I interviewed. And it had been a long time since I had seen MMI. In fact, I hadn't seen MMI until, well, it's been 1980s, 1985, I would say. Playing basketball was probably one of the last times I was at the school. Uh, so a lot had changed. I was really curious about that. Um, Tom Hood, who was the head of school at the time, um, really kind of laid it out, told me what they were looking for, how the classes ran. The degree of freedom was really interesting. It felt more like college teaching than high school teaching to me. So I interviewed, um, I got the position, I accepted the position. And I guess you could say it's the rest is history. Obviously, there's a lot that goes on from that point forward, but it's been a real learning experience for me. And it's always been a challenge. And I will tell you the first few days were really exciting, but nerve wracking. I was nervous. I was really scared. I you know, didn't know the field very well, but I had a chance to Kind of as as you know, Mr. Hood said, teach the things that you really love, and I was inspired by that. I was inspired by the fact that the school was very encouraging about giving me a chance to be able to teach when I hadn't had a formal teaching degree. I, you know, my degree was rooted in science, but not formally in teaching. What I found is that a lot of teachers who don't have formal degrees in teaching but have core degrees in their disciplines really turn out to be great teachers. Um, I'm not saying this about me, but I'm saying it about the fact that you don't necessarily have to follow that track to become a teacher and become a really effective teacher. And so I appreciated the fact that I was at a school that was willing to give me a chance when I didn't have a formal teaching degree. And it evolved from there. Obviously, I've been there. It's been 12 years now. I see myself being there as long as they'll have me. Um, and it's the best place for me to teach. It's where I find the most comfort, the most reward. It's my home away from home. I don't know if a lot of teachers feel the way I do, but I get excited this time of year because I look forward to going back and I look forward to meeting new students. And while the curriculum for me is the same content, every year is different. You know, every student is different. Every interaction is different. And so I find that kind of amazing and exciting in, in its own right. So would you say that MMI as a school, because I, I went to Marian Catholic, so I'm not too well versed on like how MMI was would you say that it really gave like students the education or more of like a simulation of what college would be like we really try it's so hard because even college is an evolving environment so right now you know obviously after COVID things that change pretty rapidly at college levels you know remote classes being able to you know take synchronous and asynchronous uh, courses um, and we've tried hard to keep pace with the changes that are happening at the college level, but not just at the college level, in curriculum in general, in finding out how to kind of give students lots of opportunities. And that is always evolving at our level, too. It's interesting because I always saw education before I got into education as something that was fixed, that didn't really move much. But since I've been in education, it evolves continuously. Like 
it can't stay fixed. It can't stay as this kind of mode that just operates on a, a scale that everybody knows and understands. It has to change with society, with the economy, with finances, with social life and and you know all of the aspects of a student that changes too so while we're trying to do that and i hope all i can say is that i hope that we're doing a really good job of preparing students you just never really know i mean there's a lot of success stories out there there are students who come back and tell you that you know the things that they've learned and the experiences they've had have been the things fundamentally that have helped them get to where they want to go and so we're always just trying to fine-tune it towards those and i listen to those students i talk to them quite a bit about what they thought was effective. And surprisingly, a lot of the things that were really effective were the rapport that they had with their teachers. It wasn't even always rooted in the course content and the curriculum. It was rooted in a lot of the interactions and the way they were treated as mature individuals and respected young adults. And I think that helped them evolve and find their way. And we just, we're trying to expose them to as many different things as we can, You know, whether it's a lab experience, a day in the field, uh, bringing somebody in or just something that we know from our background experience. And I hope that we're giving them the opportunity. My hope is lots of schools do that. It's hard because there are a lot of schools that um, have a very rigorous curriculum that is well-defined by the state and hard to, you know, give students opportunities to do anything outside of that. But I think we're doing a good job of being able to kind of navigate both pathways. We have a robust curriculum that follows state standards, but we can do a lot of the things with freedom that some schools don't have the time to do. Yeah, and it's it's crazy that you you brought that up about like talking to students because one of the questions that I wanted to bring up was cuz obviously like grades are very important, but how important do you think it is to you know try to form those students that you have now into, you know, becoming a young adult for when they're outside of the high school environment. It really is a matter of growth for them. It's not necessarily the content. It's a it's a matter of reaching a level of maturity where you understand that you're in control of outcomes. And I think part of that is, is that when you're young, you're not necessarily in control of those things. You have, you know, lots of support structures that help and guide you along the way. But when you start to kind of, you know, take the reins for yourself and realize there are a lot of things within your control, then you start to think about all of the things that you can kind of make happen or, you know, create on your own by your own right that allows you to feel like an individual, but again, follow your own path. And um, I think that our teachers do a really good job of listening to our students and hopefully as much as we can, talking to our students about the things they're interested in and even things they're not interested in. Um, for me, you know, I have a bunch of students who come into my classroom who don't have a lot of interest in the Envirothon, but I pitch it in ways that kind of make them really curious and hopefully give them kind of just an interest in checking it out to see what it's like. And then, you know, whether or not they they truly evolve into a student who loves science or someone who's just experienced it and move on. Um, the goal is, you know, you've you've immersed them in a world that they that weren't common to before. So we're trying to do that a lot. And I think as teachers, you know, the best way to do that is to be able to communicate with your students. I like to learn who my students are. I like to know what they're up to. I like and I enjoy or respect the fact that they're willing to come in and talk to me about their lives, you know, not treat me like the old style teacher where, you know, you'd see them in the store and you have to avoid them because there's your teacher and you shouldn't see them in any environment outside of the school. So that's kind of nice. I enjoy that. And just for your background, Mr. Meal was always the person throughout high school and throughout middle school and everything where you were always known as the teacher that everybody was so super comfortable talking to. So did you take pride in that or was another part of it like, wow, I'm juggling like two different jobs. I'm juggling being the school psychologist, basically, and also being, you know, the teacher side of it, too, because I know plenty of students who, you know, their person to talk to was you. So, like, how did you balance that and how did you take on like that responsibility? You know, it's not so much a role um, as it's just part of who I am. Um, I grew up with a, a pretty rocky upbringing. I, I grew up um, under a single parent family. My father passed away when I was 11 um, and it, it wasn't easy. And I remember wishing that there was someone who would just be able to talk me through some things, help me out with things that I didn't know, you know, just kind of navigate life. And I didn't have that. So I had to do a lot of learning on my own. And I think when I spend time with students, 
talking about anything, that's a healing moment for me. That helps me kind of bridge a lot of those things where I had trouble when I was young. And it's just become core to who I am. I just, I enjoy talking to people, finding out what they're like. I feel even better knowing that sometimes I can help them just by telling them about my experiences, about my background. It's interesting. A lot of our classes, you know, kind of go in different tangents. And sometimes it's experiential where we're just talking about, well, how did Mr. Meal do in science? Well, I struggled in science when I was in high school and, and even in some early college classes, but I found my way. And when you share that with students, it makes them feel a lot more comfortable about their experiences knowing, well, okay, you know, like he's had troubles, he's succeeded and I'm having some troubles, I can succeed too. You know, it doesn't have to be all, you know, above par flying at this super high level. And as you had mentioned before about grades, you know, that is a stressor, you know, in family, sometimes the only communication you have as far as feedback for how your children are doing or what you see on report cards, and you kind of navigate the world of education using that, which makes it really hard because then students can sometimes feel pressured by that too. And there's a lot of pressure sometimes between students and other students about grade competition, how they're doing. Um, and, you know, I try to to suppress that a little bit. I know grades are important. I know it means something to students. I know it means something to parents, but I don't want them to focus on that all the time because you really lose track of the core of what we're trying to do. If re really what you're doing is centralized on just a number on a piece of paper. And so I try to de-emphasize that as much as possible. I downplayed and I don't really, it's not that I dampen things or I lessen the content in classes. I just don't stress the numbers that I see. I stress growth and development. You know, I'm interested in a student who's struggling in the 60 or 70 range, who suddenly can charge up to the 90 or 100 range and they feel great about it. And then they're inspired. There's some momentum around them for moving forward too. So that's, I think, where we try to put our emphasis. But yeah, you're right. It is hard because students do put stressors on other students about grades and parents and students and students and parents. and so. Those interactions are all over the place. You see, when you apply for college, what do they want to know? They want to know your grades. They want to know your GPA. They want to know how you did on standardized tests. And so you can't ignore those things. You just have to find all of the other things that make a student really unique too, to help them stand out. So they're not just numbers on a piece of paper and they don't feel that way at any point in time. How do you feel about standardized testing in general? Boy. <laughs> Because I know, I know there's two sides of it, too, because I know there's one side of it where people are talking about, and I don't think MMI did this in particular, where people taught to the test, but just in general, I know there's a huge emphasis on, you know, I might not be good sitting there for taking a test for two, three hours at a time, but if I would actually sit down, you know, work it out and that kind of stuff, when I'm not timed, I'm able to, you know, show what I show what I know Prove what I've learned much better as opposed to, you know, a standardized te standardized test. So where do you fall on everything? So I'm, I'm really I'm smiling at what you're saying for a few reasons. One quarter of that is that there's a lot going on outside of that standardized test that predicates what level of success you're actually going to have on that test. I'll give you a for instance, and this is my for instance in <laughs> high school. Um, I was on my way to take my SATs um, driving to a, a school nearby. Uh, pulling into a gas station, I backed into my friend's car as he was getting ready to go to, to take the SAT. Now, I was in my mom's new car. I damaged the front of the car. Um, we had no cell phones, so I couldn't communicate that. I went on my way, but I was really shaken up. I knew I was going to be in hot water when I got home. And as I got into the testing station, ironically, I could see the car in the parking lot while I was taking the test. So this entire time, I'm not focused on the test. I'm focused on, you know, what's going to happen when I get home. And I didn't do well. You know, I I did okay, but I, I was capable of a lot more. But in the moment, I just couldn't. I couldn't think clearly about taking a test. So I think about that a lot because I just don't know what every student is happening with them going into a test. What kind of experience did they have? Did they have an accident on the way to take the test? Did they have a rough night? Did they not sleep well? Are they so stressed out that they can't think clearly on the content? Standardized tests do give us kind of from a level platform an idea of where everyone should be, but it doesn't necessarily express what kind of content has been taught to them, what they retained along the way, you know, what they're really capable of. So it's hard 
for me to really embrace the idea of a standardized test. To me, standardized means that if you're gonna be giving standardized tests, then there has to be standards in curriculum that everyone attends to for students to be able to achieve, achieve success. And what is, what is the negatives on those standardized tests really tell us? Does it tell us student aid had a bad teacher for that course? Does it tell us they had a rough experience or you know, a, a horrible home life? Does it tell us that they can't think clearly or they have other you know, conditions that are prevailing? And those are the things that never get addressed. The number says something about performance, but it doesn't tell you the roots of where that performance came from. You know, the AP classes, since I teach two AP classes, obviously we have tests that are standardized, even across our content through that entire curriculum, our tests are standardized. Um, and I like it in the idea that I can guarantee that by experience, everyone is getting the same things and I'm preparing them for that, but it doesn't leave a lot of room for me to go off course and, you know, go into the tangentials. And there really are some great things you could do if you had the time, but those types of environments don't really let you have the, those kind of experiences. So, you know, there are goods and bads on both sides. I try to navigate as best as possible. I don't know if I'm doing a great job when it comes to teaching towards the test because I am a bit rebellious. I still like to teach the things that I know students are really interested in. It's hard for me to ignore when a student says, yeah, I really wanna spend some time on this because I find this cool. And I'm just as caught up as they are. So it's it's a tough one. It's a double-edged sword for me. Yeah. Yeah. So talking a little bit about like after school and like student life, how important do you think it is for teachers in general to go to, um, you know, sports, sporting events, um, other things like that? Like, for example, FBLA, there's like student council, all things like that. How important do you think it is for students or teachers to also show up to those events. I think it's just as important as students kind of hoping their parents show up for those events. They love to talk in the classroom about those types of things, whether it's athletic or some other extracurricular. They, When they really kind of know you well, they appreciate the fact that you take time to go to those events and you see them having those experiences. I love being a part of that. I love being able to come in the next day and say, that was an awesome game you had last night, or, you know, glad I could see what you can do in the field when it comes to Envirothon and PJS. I'm proud of them. So I do follow them around to those things. I do like to be there for those events as much as possible. During the um, basketball season, my wife is also a teacher. She's the um, cheer coach. And so we're at almost every game. And I, you know, whether that were the case or not, I would still be attending a lot of those games. It makes for long days, but I think the students even appreciate the fact that you're willing to stay knowing, you know, you had a long day in the classroom, but you still want to see them succeed at the things they're interested in. And what would you say, you know, along, there's this teacher side of it showing up, but on the student side of it, going to those events, joining FBLA um, and, you know, mock trial and all that kind of stuff, on top of the schoolwork that they already are responsible for, how important is it to, you know, not only be important to have your schoolwork, but also to have other responsibilities, other clubs, and then, you know, your sports, and then to take time to study, do homework, have your leisure time? Like, where's all that balance fitting in? Like, how important do you think that balance is? Yeah, balance is the key word. And I don't know, sometimes I'm amazed how students actually do balance the things that they're invested in. I think sometimes there's this idea that students need to be immersed in so many different things that part of this experience means you have to, you know, play a sport, you have to, you know, play a musical instrument, you have to be involved in extracurriculars, as many as possible, because they also believe that that develops this portfolio that's very robust for a college to look at and say, hey, I've tried this and this and this. I, I don't know where the balance really lies. I think doing those things because it looks good for a portfolio is the wrong reason to do it. I think if you're curious and you're invested, that's the right reason, but it doesn't necessarily mean you do everything. It means you find a few things that pique your interest and you follow those. If it feels too much like work, then it's probably telling you something that it's not something you enjoy and it's not something you're invested in. So maybe it's time to, to look at some of the other extracurriculars. 
but it is tough. And I know there are students who spend some late nights, you know, in sporting events, particularly because those are the ones that I see go the longest, where they don't get home until, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And then they've got work due the next day. And I've always tried to be the type of teacher that understands that if a student comes in and says, you know, I know you assigned this for, you know, last night and is due today. I didn't have a chance to do it because I was at a game. I'm not going to argue that. I understand that. They're willing to come and ask me and talk to me about it. If they're invested and they're going to make up the work, that's the important piece to me. I don't want someone staying up, you know, burning the candle at both ends just to complete something to get it done. If you're doing something just for completion, it's not worth doing. You're not getting anything out of it. And so you have to have a balance. And we try to minimize when there are big events going on, the impact of the workload, you know, going into those nights, making sure that students have ample time to be able to just get some rest and have some downtime. Everything can't be about school. You've got to have life outside of school and not just extracurriculars, your own social life, your own interests, things that aren't part of the school. And it is tough. It's tough for students to be able to even fit that in sometimes. And I've heard a lot of students talk about the level of exhaustion they've experienced because they've tried to do all those things. They're stressors to about doing those things. There's pressures to do those things. And then, you know, kind of reaching the point of diminishing return where they're not then successful in the academics, which then is this, you know, vicious cycle because then that affects things like athletics and extracurriculars. So it's always tough. Um, and again, I don't, I don't get in the way if students are saying they want to do all these things, but I do try to talk to them about how they can manage that effectively as much as I possibly can. In high school, I played one sport and I found that kind of overwhelming. And so I can't imagine now when they're talking about three or four or five investments, that's just, it's a full-time job outside of school. Yeah. How, what about for you? Like, especially, you know, maybe having a, like a son who went to MMI, right? How hard is it for you to separate, you know, this is my son and his friends compared to these are my students. I have to, you know, also teach them. It's not always that downtime. It's it's interesting. Uh, you know, my son, when he, he attended MMI, had friends that were at MMI and friends that were in our area, too. Mm. And I think I treat everybody the same. I wouldn't say anybody would be surprised at how I am as a person outside of the classroom because they see me like that in the classroom. So I treat, you know, my son and his friends the same way I, I treat my students in the classroom. And now I think that's one of the reasons why they feel comfortable is they know, you know, there's no second face on me. I am who I am, whether it's in the classroom or it's at home, you know, and I, with the same level of respect, I treat my children. I treat the students in my class. They know that I talk to everybody the same too. Um, and I wondered about that, what that would look like too, when, you know, that day one, when my son was in class, would it be a different experience for him? Would it be different for me because he was in those classes? And it really wasn't. It just became, he was in, in class. He was a student of mine. He was outside of class. He was my son. I, you know, I, I really blurred any lines. It was, it was pretty um, clear cut and, and open. And so I think, and I hope all my students would say the same thing that they feel comfortable enough that to know that, you know, I am who I say I am. And so there's really no difference between, you know, my students, my son, my friends of my son, and those experiences are all pretty much the same. And I will take every opportunity to teach whether it's in the class or not. So sometimes that happens at home too. Yeah, I was about to ask. So were, are your kids like grateful in the fact that their parent is a teacher and anytime it's like, hey, I don't understand your homework. And then it's, oh, okay, let me help you with that. So not like, always. I'm not being the teacher. I'm being the dad. So is there like the two half side of it? You know, I, I don't know. I tried the uh, adding the extra stuff in kind of in the car ride on the way to school. Let me kind of beef you up on on, you know, being successful in these things. And I think it kind of drove my kids away from being inspired <laughs> by by science. And not that they weren't good at science, but just not invested at a level. I thought, well, because I'm the teacher and I know these things, I can really help them succeed. And it didn't work out that way. They kind of like, I don't, I wouldn't say that disenchanted them, but they just weren't having it. You know, when class was over, they just wanted life to go on the way it normally was. So I didn't take advantage of that too much. I kind of found that boundary pretty quickly and said, here's where it pretty much ends. You know, I'm as a dad too, I still am trying to teach things outside of the classroom, but it almost feels kind of synthetic 
pathetic and awkward, like I go into teaching mode. So that doesn't happen too much. It's just experientially those things that come up, we kind of teach our way through. And maybe that's one of the reasons why it just comes so natural is because, you know, that's just what happens in the classroom too. Okay. So now that you have a couple of years, you mentioned what, 12 years under your belt as MMI? Well. Okay. So now that you have 12 years under your belt, what makes you a different teacher now as opposed to your first day? When, as soon as you walked in, you had your first class. What would you say is different <laughs> than now? So your first day of this new year? Boy, uh, the first class, that's everything about that was anxiety laden. Everything about that was nerve wracking. Um, there's no comparison uh, from that and today. Um, I was as excited as I am to go back but I was so very nervous. I just, you know, not having the experience and not knowing what what the year would look like, what the day-to-days would look like, all of the protocols, the things I'd need to learn and do. Um, it was, I wouldn't say it was a lot. I had good mentors, but um, I still, I had a lot of anxiety because I always, I wanted to do well. I really wanted to succeed. I wanted people to like me. I wanted to to be a great teacher. I wanted to, make impressions. I wanted people to remember me. And so that was a lot I put on my shoulders. I'm not sure why I wanted all that. I don't really question it, but that's never changed. So even today, I feel the same way, but I'm comfortable with the content. I've had so much experience and exposure to things that that part is second nature. And so, you know, the material comes easy, um, knowing where we're going to go. A lot of times knowing where classes avenue-wise are going to go in certain areas when we start talking about certain things. Predictability helps to lessen some of that anxiety. Um, but it's great. It's it's still every year rewarding to have a new batch of students come through the door as freshmen. You know, I used to see them as sixth graders when I taught life science um, and see them evolve over the course of the year. They change so much when they come in as, you know, eighth grade students really trying to navigate, you know, the freshman world and watching that change happen in the classroom, outside the classroom, who they are as people is pretty amazing. I love that feeling. I love the feeling when they graduate and, you know, they send me a letter or stop in afterwards to tell me about all those things. So I think about those on the day-to-days because everything that we do in those days influences how those things are going to happen in the end. And so I like kind of preparing myself to make sure that that continues to evolve and that continues to happen. And so I think now I'm a lot more able to kind of predict where things are gonna go, able to be a little bit more helpful because I know a lot of the problems that exist, able to be more effective as a teacher over just the time that I've spent experiencing what it was like learning to be a teacher. You know, I, I guess it's a different experience if you have a classical degree in education um, than it is if you you don't. But I enjoyed the fact that I got to experience it firsthand. And I've always felt like more like a student than a teacher at times. And that learning process just continues to evolve. And so, um, but yeah, I mean, in contrast to the first year, I'd say the anxiety level has dropped and that's kind of converted itself to more of the enthusiasm and the the want to be in front of the classroom teaching. So along with that, so I'm, I'm sure you still have your days every once in a while where you get super overwhelmed, you get super stressed. So how do you now, having the experience that you have, how do you take that anxiety, take that bad day and not let it, you know, turn into you screaming at the kids, even though they didn't do anything wrong? Like, what is your way of shaping your anxiety and shaping your bad day into, okay, let me just make sure that I'm putting my best foot forward still? Like, what have you learned in order to do that along the way? I'm pretty flexible mentally. So it takes a lot to really put me into a position where I turn that into me feeling like it's a bad day. It has to be non-productive on a grand level for me to call it a bad day. When you have, you know, 20 some students in the class, not everyone is going to be invested. Some more than others. Um, Some will try you more than others. Some are really there to learn. Some are there to there to just figure out who they are and some don't know who they want to be yet. And so with that kind of melting pot, it does turn into some stress sometimes, but the managing part is just reflecting and knowing that what you see is a manifestation of a lot of things that are going on in somebody's life. And I like unraveling those things. 
if someone is going to test me like that, then I'm going to find out exactly what it is about them that is making them want to be like that. And it does help to be able to communicate through that. I haven't ever been in a situation where I had a student who was so so off put by the idea that I wanted to know what was going on, even when they were trying to frustrate me. I mean, that's they're not trying to do that because they're trying to give me a hard time and make me uncomfortable or angry. They're just venting sometimes. So I'm in the back of my mind always thinking about that when whenever something would happen, it's it's very rare. Those are the things that I kind of take pause and sit back and say, okay, all right, this really isn't about me. This is about something that's going on with somebody else. So let's figure out how to deal with that too. And I think that's how I diffuse bad days is like, I don't really put them on to me that much. If it's a bad day for me, it's because I did something wrong in the classroom. I wasn't effective or I, you know, was tired or whatever the case is. I feel non-productive. I reflect on that. I figure out how to repair it and how to move on from that. And you've been in my classroom, Ethan, you know that I'm forthcoming. I tell people, you know, if I made a mistake or I did something wrong and I figure out how to fix those things. So even my bad days are things that I learn from. So I don't, they don't stick with me for a long period of time. They're just moments in time that I have to figure out how to make amends for. And so constantly trying to do that when I have a, a bad day. And with what you said, I mean, that one-on-one -on -one is definitely, I mean, you could probably vouch for this, is definitely huge for students because it gives them an outlet in school, even if they might not have that outside of school. So that one-on-one -on -one just has to be huge for kids, especially at like a smaller school because mm -hmm. it gives that sense of everybody knowing each other. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily happen in front of everyone else. Sometimes it's just you got to sit down and they have to be comfortable enough to be honest with you about what's going on you know, what's really bugging them? Is it grades? Is it something outside the classroom? Does it involve somebody else? And I think that's one of the things that I try to build early, just a rapport with my students so that they know that there's nothing they can, you know, they have to hide from me or, or can't tell me when it's something that affects what happens in the classroom or their academics or whatever the case may be. And I think that's one of the ways I've found myself in this position where I hear a lot from a lot of students is they feel comfortable enough to just tell me when they're really struggling with something, no matter what it is. And in my experience, I've heard from point A to point Z and all the things in between and some things that have really shocked me that, you know, are personal and I won't go into detail, but but I was surprised that a student be willing to tell me the things that they're telling and to know that I could help them or get them the right help that they need in those situations, pretty powerful stuff. So I appreciate the fact that we have those experiences. And I think a huge thing right now is that, you know, kids do go through a lot and I always remember and I always take into account and when I, I love talking to like younger kids and then talking to, and seeing the reaction from you know older people who where a younger kid will end up saying oh I'm having a bad day and then their father their mother will say oh you don't have a bad day because you know you're not you're too young you don't understand this that's going on you don't understand the adulting part of this but I, I'm always on the outside just thinking like, okay, yeah, that might not be stressful to you, but it's stressful for them at that given moment. It, it, you have to take perspective on, you know, what's going on and what age that person is because, you know, first breakup, yeah, if somebody breaks up, you know, at the age of 40, it's like, okay, yeah, this is, this is upsetting, but I'll get through it. You're when right. You're, you know, 15, it's, it's earth shattering it's it's reference frame and it's perspective and you have to keep those things in mind there there's no downplaying when someone is having a bad day why they're having a bad day when you look at it and say well you know i've been through that and i experienced it and you'll get over it you can't treat it like that it's not like that for that person this is the first time they're experiencing some of those things and so it's monumental to them and you have to appreciate the fact that that's where you are with that person. You know, you you can't just go in and say everything's going to be fine. You know, you don't know what real problems are when you have a mortgage. And, you know, you, that doesn't help at all. You really have to reflect on, okay, you know, I remember dealing with this myself. I remember feeling like this myself. One of the things that you really have to do well as a teacher is not forget yourself as a student and as a child. If you let go of those things, you've lost a significant portion of what it means to become an effective teacher. You have to always think like a student and a child and someone who is experiencing those things. You have to be able to be relatable on those levels. 
And it doesn't mean you act like a child, but it means you you respect and understand where that person is at that point in time, no matter what their age is. And I think, um, I don't know, people will tell you, you know, I do act like a child sometimes. I can be kiddish and fun and, and goofy. Um, but I, again, when students are having issues that are, you know, age appropriate issues, things that are affecting them at those points in time, you know, I don't mind sharing experiences to let them know here's where we are. And here's what you can do to kind of help yourself out in, in some of those trying times. And I hope, you know, if nothing else, just listening to someone can be an effective way of helping them manage the things that they're, they're, they're stressed about or dealing with at that point in time. So, you know, the door is always open and you've known that while you were here and, you know, that'll never change. And, you know, on a little more of like a serious note, um, one thing that I've noticed definitely that has increased since when we were younger is bullying and, mm. you know, increased bullying le leads to things, you know, such as like school shootings and yeah. you know, things like that. Um, do you think schools are, you know, doing enough to combat, you know, bullying and, you know, giving kids resources to go get help if, you know, they are being picked on? I think at our school, we have in place a policy, number one, against bullying so that teachers are aware of what really happens sometimes. We have people in within faculty that are well versed on those conditions that their jobs are to attend to students who are suffering those stressors. We have teachers who play critical roles in intervening when those things happen too. The unfortunate part is it happens sometimes so mundanely in the background that a teacher may not see it, that it can happen over a text message or in the hallway or in the bathroom or in some other area that's affecting that student when they're in the class, but the origins of that happen somewhere else. And those are the things that make it really hard to combat because you don't always see it evolve until it reaches a boiling point, you know, and, and then erupts into something unfortunate. So in my class, I try to teach a level-headedness where the, if I see someone disrespecting somebody, they're going to get called out on that. I pay attention to that. We're going to have discussions about that. But I think the thing that helps people in my class not become bullied is that they realize that if they say something that other students might think is awkward, I'm not going to treat them like it was awkward. We're going to actually talk about it. And I'm going to respect the things that they said and turn it into something that gives them credibility so they don't feel awkward in the environment they are. I can imagine that if you're in an environment where you say something that is embarrassing then and the teacher doesn't help you out in there, it's just as effectively as if you're kind of left alone to the rest of the class to kind of do what they want. And it's unfortunate, but you know, in this world we're growing up in, you guys especially, and younger than you, everyone is trying to vie for a position. I don't know what that position necessarily guarantees them, but sometimes it means attacking someone to make yourself feel better or to gain something that you think you're gonna get in popularity. And it never goes that way, but it doesn't stop people from attempting to do that. The bullying that happens is really effectively, I think in many cases, somebody who again is wrestling with something and they decide to really focus on someone else because the only way they can get away from the pain they're experiencing is to make somebody else feel more pain than they're feeling. So, you know, when you can work through that and you can work with people who are having those problems, effectively, you can hopefully dissolve those barriers, lessen the, the effect of someone who would typically be a bully and also get them to appreciate exactly what it means to be in an open and a, and a classroom where everyone's respected, where you don't have to feel like you have to challenge someone to make a, an impression or a point. I don't can't guarantee that it happens in every classroom, but we try really hard to make sure that there's a level playing field for everybody. I don't think there's anybody who's ever felt in my classroom and hopefully in none of our classrooms awkward about you know, speaking their mind in class and feeling unsupported by a teacher. I think our job's above all or paramount to that to make sure our, all of our students feel respected so no one feels isolated or vulnerable. And that helps to lessen that. But you are right. I mean, it does happen a lot. And so much of it happens through social media, um, again, through text messages online. People can put stuff out on Facebook and become vulnerable. And it's just hard. It's unfortunate. Um, and this is the world where we experience most of it today. It's so easy to say something to someone blindly when you're behind a barrier, behind a shield, 
you don't really have to take the same level of responsibility if you set it directly to their face and people take advantage of that. I know for a fact, so a lot of the things people say over text messages, they'd never say to someone face to face, but that venue gives them the ability to be able to do that. And unfortunately it's hurting a lot of people. And so, you know, we have to find a better way to manage that, a better way to understand what people are going through to be able to, to kind of, you know, really take away that platform of it being social media to the advantage of a bully, which is what it is in many cases right now. And I think, like you said, the teacher's not always there when this kind of stuff happens. So right. it comes down to it where, you know, fellow students, even though you're not involved in the situation, don't just let somebody just keep getting beaten down and beaten down. Like it comes to the point where you have to help your peers out and you have to help your fellow students out where, you know, if you realize that somebody's not going to get the help that they need because nobody's able to watch and nobody's able to realize what's going on, you know, you have a sort of responsibility to end up helping them out yourself. It sort of comes to that bystander effect where everybody's just watching it happen and everybody's like, wow, something should be done about that. And then nobody does anything about it. I mean, I well, think it's a huge thing for peers and students just in general. It's the irony of the world that we live in where people are more apt to see something stigmatizing happen, pull out a phone and record it, then intervene and stop it from happening. And that's unfortunate. Um, as to what you just said, you know, I appreciate the fact that in a classroom, if something happens outside of the classroom, there has been times where other students have come to me and said, hey, just so you know, this person is dealing with this, this happened somewhere, and we can address it. I, I more than anything appreciate the fact that people are willing to talk to me about those things that are happening. I'm not you know, left out blind to those things. And, and again, we can intervene and get hopefully help for people who need it on both sides of that coin, because, you know, it, it's an effector on both sides, the person who's experiencing the bullying and the person who's doing the bullying. So again, in my class, I have had people come up to me after class and say, hey, I just want to let you know this happened. And so, you know, what can you do? And then we'll spend time actually dealing with that, pulling it apart. And I think that's one of the things that, again, helps to, I wouldn't call it credibility, I would say, of other people to know that when they tell you something that you're going to carry forward and you're going to help them, you know, get help for whatever those things are, not just say you're going to do it. And then it kind of just fades away. That doesn't mean anything to anyone. And so, you know, I pride myself on being there when that happens. I don't like being in those situations, but I like the fact that someone's willing to be honest enough to tell me when something's going on. So. Yeah. And I guess that also helps with, you know, going to a smaller school because, you know, in a smaller school, everyone knows everybody. Like I graduated a cl in a class of, you know, 72 and that's big compared to <laughs> like a class with, you know, that size, but even still, like it remains the same, you know, when everybody knows everybody, it gives you a chance to, you know, get help or have somebody, you know, go get help if that other person is too afraid to. And I think that, I think that that happens more than the norm at our school in a lot of public schools. I don't think that that necessarily happens as much as it should, unfortunately. And so we are blessed that it's a small school. We are blessed that students have confidence enough to come and seek us out when they need help. But it doesn't happen in every case. I'm sure there's a lot that is, you know, flying above the radar or below the radar that, you know, is affecting students that we don't see. Um, the hope is the more that we talk about these things, the more that we kind of bring it to the surface that we're aware of it that people will come forward and tell us when it happens so that we can be more proactive. We're trying to create an environment where no one feels like they have to rise above somebody else by stepping on somebody else. And if that happens at the school, you have pride in your school, you feel comfortable with the people you're around to be who you are and not worry about being scrutinized, you know, you evolve that much faster. You can become who you want to become without worrying about trying to fit in a mold just so you survive on the day to day. I was that kid who was bullied in high school you guys talk about, you know, it increasing. I think the awareness of it is increasing. I think when it happened when I was in high school, a lot of it was teachers who would just watch it happen and kind of not get involved with it. It just, you know, students would sort it out on their own, you know, with a fist fight or whatever the case was. You know, I was the student that wasn't a big kid in high school. I was bullied in our high school. It was seventh grade through uh, 12th grade. And so all the new kids coming in were kind of fodder for the older kids to pick on. And I was one of those kids and they knew how to do that. I literally would be late for my classes because I took the long stairwell to avoid a lot of those students. So, oh. yeah. <laughs> and that was a long time ago. 
<laughs> do you, you have a lot of students um or former former students um come back to you today and you know like tell you hey like you know I appreciated what you did when I was in high school because you know it may have helped me stand up for myself in the future or even in general do you have a lot of older like former students come back to you today those moments are the ones that choke me up because they do happen quite a bit. It's either a letter I get at graduation that says, hey, I just wanna let you know, I remember this, when this happened and you helped me out, or it's they come back afterwards and talk about the influence of being there when they needed someone to help them, or the encouraging them to try something that they weren't interested in. And there have been countless times where I just sit at my desk and I get a card or I get an email or somebody stops by and I just fall apart. I, I can't help it. I just, I'm so choked up in the moment. I can literally pull all of the pictures down from my board. And, you know, half of those pictures are experiential things on the back of them that talk about, I remember this, and I'm so glad you got to experience this with me, or you helped me with this. And that, it's like an extension of family, really. You see those things, and that's a support group of its, of its own, you know. It's when you realize you've affected somebody else's life that way. What else do you need? I don't, I don't know. I mean, the fact that I don't know when it's going to happen again and the fact that I keep trying to be influential is the thing that just seeds my investment in education. That's what I'm there for. And uh, again, I appreciate it. Ethan comes back when he can. I have a lot of students who stop in and it's it's humbling because I don't remember spending that kind of quality time in my classrooms with my teachers where we could reminisce about things or I, you know, wanted to be in those environments. So I, I think it's amazing for a student to be at home and go, you know what, I think I'm going to go by my old school just to see my teachers. That, that's, you know, the most appreciation anyone could pay to me. And that's just overwhelming and amazing. And yeah, it does happen a lot. And that that's what it's all about, right? I mean, because at, at in high school, those are probably some of your most important years. Like, you might not realize it in the moment, but like looking back, like you wouldn't trade any of it. I, I know I wouldn't. Mm -mm. Um, and that's what's important is, you know, form, forming those students to being young adults so that one day they can come back to you and be like, you know, I just want to thank you for everything you've done for me because if it weren't for you, I wouldn't have learned what I learned. So that's awesome. You, you are right about realizing that in the moment that it doesn't happen that way often. Um, sometimes there are students that appreciate it, certainly along the way, but there are those who you kind of, they leave and you're like, wow, I, I hope the best for them. I don't know if I'm going to see them, where they're going to go. And then they come back and they're like, you know, here I am and this is what I'm doing. And I'm amazed. And, you know, and then they'll talk to me about, well, you know, I was kind of a jerk when I was here and <laughs> I didn't pay attention much in your class. I wish I would have spent more time listening. And that's enough, right? Whether it happened in the classroom or they're going to tell me about it two years later, the fact that they're willing to come back and say, you know, when I reflect on it, you made a difference. That's that's pay for me. That's exactly what it's about. Um, I wouldn't find myself anywhere else. And I say that wholeheartedly. I, I mean, I'm at this job and in this position at this school, as long as they'll have me, it's what I do. So I think this is a big question. You're talking about how you've molded into the teacher that you want to be. So would you say that Mr. Meal, the student, would like Mr. Meal, the teacher, as a teacher, if you taught yourself back in the day? <laughs> that is an interesting circle. <laughs> yeah, I, I tried to end up getting back to it, but yeah. I think I would because who I am now is the person that I was missing in my life when I was young. So that that's what I was always looking for. And I think that I'm still becoming that person you know, I'm still in school myself. I'm still working on my degree and everything that I learned about that is helping me be a better teacher and a better learner. And um, I'm trying to be that person because I do reflect almost sometimes as the younger me as a different person. This was a person who was growing up on their own, you know, had a lot of stressors in their life. I could help a person like that. And so I'm helping myself as much as I'm helping everybody else. It's cathartic. And I've had many of those moments in school, too, where I reflect on it and say, wow, this has been more beneficial to me than you know. And then I share that with students. And, you know, to have a student feel rewarded, wow, I helped the teacher through something? That's great. Um, but I think that's the kind of rapport that every student would hope to have and want, and want to have.
And um, yeah, whether it happens two years, four years down the road, 10 years down the road, whatever the case is, I'll take it when it comes. And kind of with what you said, if if you now could go back to when you were our age, what is one thing you would tell yourself? And do you think the former you, like the younger you would listen? Would I listen? No. I probably, <laughs> wouldn't, I probably wouldn't listen. Um, I would reflect years later on that with humility, but I would still feel like no one could tell me what my life could be like, and no one's had the experiences I'm having. And so this is my life, and you can't tell me that everything's going to be okay, or I can manage it doing this, that, or the other thing, that I just have to walk this course. If I could go back now and convince myself somehow, I would try to convince myself that all of those things that have happened to me that have been the negative, the stressors, the really hard things have helped me become someone who is effective in helping other people. It would it would have made those things easier to know there was a reason why I was dealing with those things. You know, you couldn't put rationale around it at the time. Why was I picked on? Why, why did I get beaten up um, in school? Why did I get bullied? Why did I get ridiculed? You know, anyone who's going through that wonders why, and they put that on themselves. But to know that it's happened and that I've survived it and I can talk to somebody else who's dealing with those things, not as a teacher, but as someone who's experienced it, means so much more. You can teach all you want. If you don't know the content, you're not really teaching. And if you haven't experienced the content, you can't call yourself a teacher. And so teachers are people who have experienced things in life that they remember and they use those effectively to help other people who are really struggling through those things, whether it's academics, social life, or whatever the case is. You know, walking the walk is really what it's about. I wouldn't trust a doctor who learned everything he knows by just reading it in a book. I want him to be part of those environments, affect change themselves. And, you know, that's what I want to be. If I haven't done it, I'm not going to tell someone how to do it. I'm going to figure out how to do it, work my way through it, and then help somebody else do it. Uh, but I'm not going to fake it. And those are the things I would have tried to convince myself. Would I have listened? Probably not. I would have remembered it. And then as I got older with humility, say I should have listened to that when I was young. <laughs> and you, you brought up an interesting point in the fact of <laughs> nobody could tell you what to do with you, like your life. Um, Ethan and I were actually talking about something similar, maybe about like a week ago, where we were talking about like our college degrees. And I brought up an interesting point and I have the type of degree where people are just like, oh, well, I don't know if the money is in that and stuff like that. And I hear that constantly, constantly. But it's the type of thing where it's like they don't know because they're not in my shoes. They've never, you know, gotten to experience the things I've experienced or, you know, dive deep into things. And it's the type of thing where it's like I wouldn't listen either. Like I, I just don't because it's like it's my life. I'm going to make the most out of what I can do with my degree and but it, you just made an interesting point in saying that. So I just wanted to bring that up. And I, I hope people take that to heart and realize that, you know, everyone who's pursuing whatever path they're pursuing, you know, it's their own vision quest. It's their own trying to find some resolve, some place to go, some way to be effective. All I'd say is that people who are pursuing those things need to have a, a vested investment. They need to be genuine around those things. If you love the things that you're doing and you're pursuing those things, you're going to find a niche somewhere. I can't guarantee that it's going to be productive financially, but you know, that's not the end all and be all. Could I be somewhere making, you know, more money? Maybe, but would it solve any of my problems? Would it give me, you know, a better feeling when I lay down and go to sleep at night? No, I think I am where I am because I was fortunate enough to, to be open and have discussions and talk about who I am and people who listen to that, who gave me a chance too. And, you know, I ask my students to do the same thing, give others a chance. The one thing that I don't like that you had mentioned is when people do that to other people in the classroom saying, you know, oh, what you're planning on pursuing isn't going to take you anywhere. Or if you're not a doctor or a lawyer or you know, whatever the case is, then it's a dead end. That to me is just kind of a lot still more of the bullying that happens at an academic level. So we have to find ways to kind of encourage everyone to do the things they want to do. And appreciate the fact that we're not all going the same direction. And if we did, we'd all be doctors and we'd all be out of business because there'd be nothing else to do. So um, that's the spice of life. Do what you want to do. You know, find your own niche, create your own niche if it doesn't exist. 
follow the things that you're passionate about. If I had never picked up books on marine science, got interested, would I be where I am? I don't know. Maybe those are the things that led me to where I am today. And I'm grateful for all those experiences, good and bad, along the way. And I just want to say that I'm very grateful that you ended up cho choosing teaching because that is what ended up leading me to you. And I know we had plenty of great memories, including going to China with each other. So that was that was fun as well. Um, or not China. Yeah, yes, China. China and the British Isles. Yeah. Right. So we were, yeah, me and him were world travelers together. Yeah. But um, yeah, I just wanted to thank you for all the time you ended up spending. I think um, previous students of yours and current student of, students of yours are going to be very happy and very excited to end up hearing this episode. Um, and also people that have no idea who you are, but are interested in just, you know, academics and just learning more about what a teacher has to say would be very interesting and are very, I think they're going to really appreciate the insight that you have on not just seeing academics as a job, but more as the lifelong learner sort of atmosphere. So I really appreciate all the time that you spent today. I hope so, Ethan. And I really, I'm, I mean, I, I'm very happy that I had students like you who kind of invest in, you know, finding out about teachers and the profession. And, you know, it's not just about a podcast. I know where your heart lies. And I think that those are the things that are humbling to me, too. I know that at our school, there's a lot of teachers who feel the exact same way that I. I know in many schools, there are teachers that feel this way. They don't always have a platform where they get to talk about those experiences. So I'm grateful that you were willing to reach out to me to say, hey, you know, what's it like in the, the day of the life of a teacher? And, you know, I, I, I couldn't be happier sharing those things with you. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So I wish you the very best in the uh, future school year. Have because, a good school year. Because I know up. it's coming up really shortly. So <laughs> we will be back time. getting ready next week. And then the week after that, we'll be in full force. So. Oh, okay. Well, I wish you the very best um, and have an amazing school year. Oh, thanks um, so much, guys. And for all of our listeners, we will see you again next Wednesday.